A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have Rena Shanawani with me. Rena is the leader of the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship out on the East Coast. Um, they are doing some amazing things for, for women's businesses. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we're not here just to talk about what they do for women's business, but, but Rena's got a great, um, great history, a great story, and um, really a great story of leadership that, that we're going to share today. So, uh, Rena, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's really a pleasure having you. So, um, what um, tell tell me a little bit about the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship? What exactly do you guys do? We are one of 116 women business centers across the country. All of us receive the same grant from the Small Business Administration, and our mission is to help people start businesses and grow businesses by providing technical support in any form that we can, whether it's counseling or classes or consulting or just connecting them to other resources such as to banks or other nonprofits that can provide other types of technical support. Excellent. Excellent. And, you know, um, you know, you, you shared with me that you are the second leader of this particular organization, certainly at a predecessor that started, and we'll talk about the, the history of the organization in a minute, but, but nobody ends up the top of an organization for nothing. I, you know, I'd love to hear your story. Let's tell the, the listeners something about you. Sure. So after I finished grad school, I had my master's in public health and there, the public health ecosystem is one of people who want to do community development and international development and really cares about the the general welfare of communities at large. And when I finished, I, I went overseas. My family is from Syria and we used to summer there. And I planned to do a quick three month internship there. My parents had a house And instead, so I did these internships with several different UN agencies, and I ended up getting engaged to an old friend of mine who I had known for years, and we've been now we've been married for 20 years. And that was the plan. The plan was to stay in Syria. I continued to work for the UN. I ended up being hired to start and run an international NGO. An NGO is the same word, is, it's the American word for nonprofit. And it was a British chapter organization that helped micro entrepreneurs. And so that was the plan. My husband and I, we put all our eggs in one basket. We were living there. We were planning to retire there. I was growing this organization to three other cities. We were helping hundreds of micro entrepreneurs and we had three kids. And finally the war broke out in 2011 and we were forced to drop everything, (laughs) abandon all of our assets, abandon our whole life, all of our lives there. And we moved back to New Jersey and are living, you know, we had to move in with my parents and it was very difficult. We, it's still, there was still suffering a little bit the repercussions of that big life changing move. 
But thankfully, I came here and I had some experience. I worked as a nonprofit consultant for a few years. And just when I was about to give up, I had applied to so many nonprofit jobs, getting small term contracts here and there. And then finally, the, my predecessor, who who had been in the organization for 13 years, stepped down, and it was just a perfect match. It was micro-entrepreneurship, nonprofits, women, and I got hired pretty quickly for that and have been with the organization for the past five and a half years. Excellent. So, so you've, I've got like all these questions that have come up, um, <laughs> you know, just, just totally off the wall, but so what city were you in, in, in Syria? Were you in Damascus? Were you up in Latakia? Yes. Were you, so, so you were in Damascus. We were in the capital city of Damascus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, with the war breaking out, you recognized quickly that you had to get out of there because there were people that got stuck. There were people yeah. that couldn't get out. Um, you know, t- tell what, what was that like for you? What, what was it like to have to pick it all up and tell me about friends you've left behind and what's going on with them? Yeah, it was, it was horrible, I have to say. And I, I mean, compared to other people's experiences, it was, I feel guilty saying that because it was nothing, but we really mourned and grieved for a long time. I think my husband is actually still in the grieving process of having lost that entire life. Cause so his parents and his ex- whole extended family and all of his cousins and best friends growing up, they're all still there. Wow. I was, had one leg in one country and one leg in the other. So I grew up here. I was born here, grew up here, but I had my extended family there. And so for me, uh, it was an easier transition. All my education was as well from the United States. So it was easier for me to, to pick up and, assimilate again to this country but it was it was it was awful I mean we had like I said we had to drop everything we had three kids all of them were they were four five and seven years old at the time and we had to come figure things out two of them luckily were able to go to a local elementary school and my youngest who had a selective mutism mm-hmm where she just didn't speak in schools was, was also, we were trying to figure out what to do with her. We had no money at all. We had no savings. I think I, I think I came over with $5,000 and that was it. That's all we had. And pretty much all of that went to go. I got a half scholarship from 50% scholarship from a local preschool. And it was, it was a blessing because they cured her. They cured her of a, of her, her issue. And, it was a co-op. So I think me being there and volunteering once a month and she becomes the leader of the day really helped grow her yeah. confidence. Yeah. But other than that, we were unemployed for several years. It was, it was, it was really bad. It was very depressing. Uh, I think my husband suffered as well from um, survivor's guilt yes. because he, he knew people who died. He knew people who were in the protests Um and leaving, abandoning his whole family, and then not being able to go back. I think that was the worst thing. So years and years and years passed, and we weren't able to enter the country. And that was just torturous for for him until last summer. So last summer, we finally were able to go back, and we spent a few weeks there. And there was a lot of just good times, happiness, closure, it was an extraordinary trip. So are things settling down a little bit there? Because I still hear stories, especially in the North, of a yeah. lot of things going on. That's right. So things aren't 100% settled. 
there are still skirmishes, there are still uh, disputes over specific parts of the country, over specific territories. Thankfully, ISIS is now gone. That's one huge thing. And that, that was something that as well directly impacted uh, um, extended family members of mine, especially in the Northeast, where they, their, their capital was, Raqqa. Yeah, yeah. So that I have family in that city as well. And uh, thankfully, everyone... Everyone in my immediate inner circle survived and came out of it, but they lost homes, they lost other things. But I do know of people, you could say, in my secondary circle that were bombed, lost eyes, lost limbs, lost houses, lost family members. And, and thankfully, we're, we're all okay yeah, and, and I certainly understand the survivor's remorse thing. Um, yeah, I had an uncle. This is kind of a different, a uh, little off the topic. I, well, same idea. He, you know, he was at Pearl Harbor and um, when it was bombed. He actually, he just passed away a couple of weeks ago, and he's one of the last Pearl Harbor survivors. But, you know, even later in life, he, you know, he would share stories with me once in a while about, you know, the ones that didn't make it and, and you know, feeling like, you know, why did I survive when others didn't? And I don't think, you know, I really, you know, as a country, you know, we really don't know what war is about here. Um, you know, we hear the stories, we see the stuff on TV. Um, I, I think we, we, make, we make decisions and have opinions based on whatever news source we happen to hear. But, you know, even Vietnam and, and some of the things that have occurred even more recently, we're still detached. You know, war here hasn't occurred since the Civil War. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to understand. It's hard to relate. It's hard to empathize. And, you know, to even some extent, I mean, you know, people of Syria could easily be judged based on how the news stories are. And, you know, it's all this, it's all that, but that's not the, that's not the truth of any situation. There are a lot of good people that get hurt in a situation like that. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. I think that people, one thing I always try to remind everyone are, is that, you know, ISIS was this horrible, horrible entity and the people that suffered the most from them were the Muslims and the Syrians and the local people. They're the ones who suffered directly and at their hands. So I always try to help try split those two images in people's minds. And, and indeed, I, I completely agree with you about not being able to empathize, empathize with people who have been through wars, especially recently. I feel that it's not covered in the media anymore. I mean, there were all these uprisings and protests and the people really got involved during the Vietnam War. And why? Because there were cameras, there was constant media attention on, and it's just not happening anymore. And it's tragic. Well, there were also Americans on foot, right? And so how much, how much, you know, how much do we or any other country, you know, how much does the country really care if their own people aren't, you know, I, I think countries have a habit of disassociating to some degree. And, mm -hmm. you know, a, a country that um, we've had a fair amount of interaction with through the years, all of a sudden, it's kind of like almost hands off. And yeah, we saw the threat and, you know, Russia was doing its thing and all that stuff. But, but, you know, there is kind of sometimes this non-involvement that goes on and, and, you know, we can, we can date all that back. You know, there was even a period pre-World War II with Nazism, that number of Americans just didn't want to be involved. They didn't really even want to know what was going on over there. It's almost like an isolationism. Right. I agree. And, and you're right in the fact that they're not on foot and they're not involved in that way, but still there are drone strikes that are happening daily in various parts of the world by, by the United States military. Yeah. And 
So the involvement is different. It has evolved. And you're right, you don't see the American soldiers coming off from the planes right. in body bags anymore, correct? Right, right. But still, there are civilians in other countries that are dying yeah. from, 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 you know, at various conflicts. So did you, when, when you came over here, when you came back over here, um, how, much of, how much of it was that you were seen as a foreigner and people didn't want to interact with you? Or were, did, you, did, were you, did you feel a need like almost labeling because you were Syrian and you came from this, this Syrian environment and they didn't want anything to do with you? Definitely when I was applying for things and I was working as a consultant, I worked for one big consulting firm and they said there was one person I kept trying to apply and apply and apply. And again, when you are unemployed and you don't have any steady work, I think that is one of the most awful, horrible feelings in the world. And I, so I think I had like a one month contract and she said to me, you know what, you just don't have the track record of working with U.S. firms and working in the United States, all of your experiences overseas. And honestly, it's just not as believable. It's not as credible as someone who had worked here. So I would recommend you go and get your PMP certification and prove to people that you can do the job. Even though all my undergraduate and graduate school experience was from here, my, my actual work experience was almost all overseas. So yeah, it was really tough and it was devastating. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I, I look at it and think, wow, you know what? You work for the UN. I mean, that, that to me, it's, it's like there's like instant credibility there, but there wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, there wasn't. Oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. And so, um, you know, still have family over there. Obviously you guys just went, did anybody else flee or, 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 um, yeah. So every single person I know that had a connection outside the country and who didn't have older, older family to take care of has left the country. Yeah. So that's on my, on my side of the family. So all, almost all of my friends, my closest friends have moved. My husband, on the other hand, his parents, although they have connections outside the country, they are still there. And why? Because one has her mother who's still alive. The other has his older sister who's still alive and they cannot leave them. And those, that older, older generation will tell you, I would rather die in my home then leave it. And that's it. There's, there's no arguing with it. Yeah. That, that's a, a pretty normal sentiment for a situation like that. People are older and they just, you know, they, they don't want to go and no matter how logical it can be. I mean, do they really want to go and start life again somewhere else and give up everything mm -hmm. they've had? That's, that's a, that's a, a tough and tall order. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I guess the last thing I thought about is, um, and I, I know we're going down this path quite a bit, but it's really interesting because it does make up who you are as a leader. Um, you know, Damascus, when, when I was younger, I had an opportunity and, you know, my family used to travel a lot internationally and I've, I've been to Damascus back in what we call the glory days, same thing with, um, with Beirut. And they were beautiful cities from what I can recall. What was it like now? There, Damascus is this spectacular place where you feel like you've stepped into a time machine and gone back around 70 years. Yeah. And it was even like that when I was there. So I was there from 99 to 2011. And I think that's what made it so special and so authentic 
we the, the country itself was under sanctions for so long for decades and decades and now the sanctions are back on and now things are really bad there in terms of the economy but i think that's what kept it in such a time bubble i mean we didn't even get internet i remember when i first moved there in 99 that's when internet first hit the country and it was dial up and you had to dial into Lebanon to be able to get the internet. And then cell phones came out years, a few years after that. So everything is so delayed and so behind every other country. But again, that's, I think what made it, what preserved it and what preserved its culture and its people. And it was in its own way, this very magical place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have, I, I still have images of my head of the, the, of the bazaar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the outside shopping and just just everything that you would see, the smells, the 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 the, the sights. And I mean, I'm, I was a kid, and I still remember this. I mean, I'm, I'm going back, you know, almost fifty years, and um, and yet these are these are things, and you know, you'd hate to see that aspect of culture lost because of something like a war and other things. But but um, hopefully, some of those, the, at least the cultural elements, have stayed in place. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Well, um, we're, we're actually already to the end of our, our first segment. We have to take a break for a commercial. But um, when we come back, we're going to change gears. And we're going to start uh, getting more into kind of leadership. So stay tuned, and we will be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Rena. Rena, okay, so what, a, what an incredible journey to get from, from really there through a war to get, to get home. Um, you know, those things really do shape who we are as, as a person. And you've 
really, I mean, you've, you've, you've taken on a, a, a leadership position in a great organization and um, a lot of your history shaped who you are as a leader. Uh, I'd love it if you describe a little bit some of your leadership philosophy and, you know, what are the, what are the ways that, that your experiences shaped your leadership style and how has it affected your success in today's world? I think that my leadership style is one of extreme independence and autonomy for each person. So let me, let me pitch to you my, my leadership philosophy. If I come to you, Chris, and I say, hey, Chris, look at the neighbors. They are starving and they need food. I can either then say to you, go get them food, or I can either say to you, what do you think? What can be done to help them? When it's your idea and you're suggesting what to do, that second option becomes something that you're irrationally committed to and you're enthusiastic and you feel ownership of it and pride to do it and really follow it through to the other end. When I was in Syria, the first option of go get it done was the culture there. And I think working there it helped shape me in the opposite extreme. I became the extremely, extremely in the other direction of, hey, this is a collaboration. I want each person to contribute. I want everyone's feedback, and I want everyone to just pitch ideas. We'll brainstorm them together, and then you are the owner of that all the way through to conclusion up to the end of it. So I think that that is, in general, my, my leadership style and I think that also just comes from working in nonprofits. So when you're working in nonprofits, it's just generally the case where you're working in an ecosystem of extreme empathy and compassion. And so it's always about seeing things through the lens of everyone from their perspectives, from all stakeholders' perspectives. Does the, does the extreme empathy and compassion ever get in the way of action? For me, I think it does. I know that I think that's my biggest weakness as a leader. I am so gung-ho about building a consensus and making sure everyone feels comfortable with the decision that sometimes they get paralyzed. And it's hard for me to just, you know, make run. I have to talk to my run. I make an executive decision and just move forward on this and blast through. But that discomfort for me will definitely slow things down. Well, you know, I, I could also argue, and, and this is a lot of what we preach, you know, in our organization when we work with clients, but what you're talking about is what we define as true leadership. So we talk a lot about the difference between a leader and a manager and, you know, managers control the decisions. Managers tell people what to do. And when when you're in management mode, and there are times when you have to be in management mode, if somebody doesn't have the experience or you know, let's say there are times as even a leader, you have to make a decision, you know, even the high level stuff. But when you're in management mode, the accountability actually falls on your shoulder, not the person who's doing the work, right? So what happens is, um, you know, you tell them what to do and they can go do it. If they don't generate the result, whose fault is it really? I mean, you know, how do you hold them accountable to something you told them to do if they did it? And, and therein lies the trick, but, but with leadership, um, you know, what we're really doing is sharing with them an expected result or someplace where they need to go and we empower them to then do it. And there's, like you said, there's this self-accountability that almost comes into play. When, when people make the decision, 
they they have they almost have to own up to it, right? Otherwise, you know, maybe you know they could almost be hypocritical to some degree if they don't believe in it. And if it's their decision, they 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 need to own up to it. So I, you know, to me, I'd I'd always prefer somebody at the top of the organization to have a leadership style. And the last point I think I I would typically make on this is if you're managing people, you become a bottleneck because how many people can you effectively control? At any given time, it's 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 highly limited. But when you empower people, you get there. Yes, consensus can get in the way. Sometimes you have to pull a trigger, but um, but it's there. But this kind of concept of nonprofits being highly empathetic and 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 compassion driven, we work with a lot of nonprofits. I see it all the time, and it does sometimes get in the way of of action without question. So you know, given that. When, when you find yourself at those moments, how do you handle them? How do you handle them as a leader? What are the kind of things you do to move your organization along? I, sometimes it's important to reduce the number of opinions that are you're trying to build a consensus from. So if you open the spoke, scope up too much, that will definitely lead to paralysis. And so sometimes the executive decision just becomes, well, the only people that are really going to provide feedback for this one particular deliverable is going to be these two people. And whatever they, des- whatever they decide, that's going to be the final execution of, of the action. So I think that's, a, that's one technique that we can use sometimes. Just too many cooks spoiling the broth is a one tactic. Do you... Um do you ever struggle with control? So, so having, having grown up, um, when I say grown up, I'm talking about in your business life, having grown up in a culture where it is a more, let's call it management style culture, just the, the, the natural culture there. Um, sometimes find that the people who are in that role of making decisions for others for a long period of time have a very difficult time shifting. Now you said, you said a few minutes ago, that you almost developed your own kind of counter culture. So when you came over here and you got into working, was it really natural for you to slip into leadership or did you find yourself struggling with some control issues? I think it was quite natural. I think there was a brief moment. There was if there was about a six to 12 month period where I did need to prove credibility and earn respect That didn't just come on day one. I had to demonstrate knowledge and interest and being invested. And then after I proved all of that, that's when things started to slip into place. And yes, there were lots of moments where I had to have very difficult conversations. I, I had to bulldoze through the discomfort and that's a skill as well that needs to be developed. I think that leaders need to be developed is how do you have those really uncomfortable conversations? There's also an emotional intelligence component to that that I think is important to study and to hone. And I think that you might as well, another technique I think is don't let things fester. And I give three, three chances, three strikes and you're out. And there were, we did have some employees that weren't able to, to work at harmoniously with the, with the team and the culture. And so that's another big thing is to hire slow and fire fast. After, after you've given someone the, the chances to redeem themselves and really been very open and communicating with what those issues are, I think that that sometimes you just got to 
cut cut people off that are just unable to assimilate. Yeah, and you know, it's look, leadership is not about um, is not about you know empowering people to do whatever they want all the time, et cetera. I mean, you know, it's there there is there really is something to the fact that we still have to hold them accountable, whether it's to performance behaviors, et cetera. I mean, you know, you know, there are tough decisions, and not everybody's a good fit for every organization. Do you um do you guys have core values for your your organization? We have mission and vision, yeah. and we have done a lot of strategic planning. Yes. Yeah, and so, you know, we find that, that um, you know, the mission, the vision, um, nonprofits tend to do this very well. And, and whether there are core values that are formally in place, there's always a value system that drives behaviors. Um, but finding people who are the right fit to that, that value system, the right fit to the mission are, is essential. So back to your higher slow, um, that search for that right fit can take a while, but hire f- mm-hmm. or fire fast. If, they're not, if you determine they're not a good fit, it is time to move them out without question. Um, you know, and, and that actually, I think ties to another kind of concept. You, you know, I'm a real believer. You can't empower people you don't trust. Right. So you'll either manage them or you'll work them out of the organization. Um, you know, so, so if you've got somebody new, new to the team, obviously there's a lot of communication that's in play. Are there any other tactics you utilize to, to, to grow them and to build trust and, and to, and for, for you to, to, to build confidence, um, in their abilities so you can kind of empower empower them and listen to their opinions? Yeah, so I'll ta- I talk, I did do some PMP, some project management training, and that concept, going back to that concept, if once you become the owner of a project, you have to follow through until the deliverable has been delivered. So whatever happens along the way, if, you, if someone didn't get back to you or someone didn't email you or someone didn't follow through, it's still on you. So that's, that's always on you. So what I, what I've said before to, to certain, you know, at certain times is I put people into two buckets when I work with someone, the first bucket is you're in charge of something and I get to sleep at night and I know it's going to get done no matter what. And the other bucket is I will wake up literally in the middle of the night, knowing that the thing hasn't gotten done, knowing it's not going to get done. And once I start losing sleep, that's it. That's when the first warning comes. And I'll say that. And the second warning and the third warning. And once you get to that third warning, that's it. I just can't work with you anymore (laughs) because I need to sleep. And I think everyone needs to be able to depend on each other. You know, and I I just so appreciate that you've got a clear way of thinking this through. It's it's amazing how many leaders actually don't. I mean, you know, you know, it's either they 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 keep trying till they hit a breaking point, or you know, I find that communication is often really lacking. I mean, that upfront, honest communication on how people are performing. I believe it's something should be done regularly. You know, you know, in a very very systematic way, is giving people feedback. It's the greatest gift you can give them agreed and it is extremely uncomfortable to ask for it to give it to take it and still it's something that everyone should bulldoze through and demand it that's what the the best leaders do the best leaders demand feedback and i'll tell this to our clients too so all of our clients are micro entrepreneurs yeah and i'll tell them a lot of them have, there's fixed mentality versus growth mentality. So the fixed is, I don't want feedback. I don't want to change. This is my model. And I'm going as a, like a runaway train towards a specific product or service that I have. 
And then you have a growth mentality, which means, yes, I'm willing to grow. I want to, I want to expand. I want to listen and get feedback. And I try to really push our clients to go into the growth mentality. And the best thing that they can do is to go to any client of theirs or any, any customer and get feedback. And it's scary. And they try really hard to avoid it. But I tell them, I said, people pay bundles and bundles of money to hire focus groups and to get feedback. You have that. You already have that built into your business. Just go ask them, pick up the phone, do a survey, do an e-blast, do whatever you can, and continue to get the feedback. And sometimes it'll just come passively. Those complaints, those complaints, is your, that's your feedback. That's your focus group. And you have to quickly incorporate and pivot any chance you have. And those are the ones, every, every business that you ever read about, the ones that continue to pivot and pivot and pivot based on customer feedback, those are the ones that have exponential growth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, so, so in a couple of minutes, we're going to go really deep into the business model because there's so much great advice and things that you do. But I did one more question I want to sneak in before we have to break. Um, and I think it ties exactly to what you just said. A few minutes ago, you, you talked about how important it is for a leader to hone their EQ. And EQ is something, you know, Daniel Goleman came up with it a number of years ago. We've talked about it in the business world, at least to some degree for 20 years. And yet I, I find that a lot of leaders don't even know really what EQ is. Mm. And um, there, you know, EQ starts with a level of self-awareness, but it, it gets into awareness of others. Um, I'd love to know a little bit of your thinking on, on, you know, what are the most important aspects and what do leaders need to know about EQ and how to hone that? I find the science of EQ absolutely mesmerizing. I try to read on it, listen to podcasts, read books. I as well coach public speaking. And we there's a lot of tiny little things you can do that will make an entire difference in the way your chemistry is with a person. And it's, it's just the way you engineer words and the way you engineer sentences, even in emails. It can make a huge difference. I think the underlying, the underlying bottom line of EQ boils down to empathy. And if, if you can really hone in your empathetic uh, traits of your personality, I think that makes it simple to go into the EQ. So it's, it's small things like I was talking about. Instead of we talked about management style versus leadership style, that's, that's part of EQ, Right. And it's things like when you need to give feedback to someone, you start, there's the sandwich method, which there's also some controversy about the sandwich method. You know, you start off with positive, you say this is a growth opportunity, and then you continue down with the, with the positive again. Some people will say that, well, that if, if you know that there's going to be that little center part of the negative, it's just going to increase their cortisol rates and their anxiety. Yeah. So you just got to get straight to it. So how do you bring that feedback in a, in a way that's going to help them grow, make it optimistic for them, let them know that it's an opportunity and not crush them and devastate them? So it's, it's, it's a lot of, like you said, self-awareness, and it's on both ends that there has to be that level of acceptance of the feedback. No, and you know what? Uh, 
I have to tell you, so, so my mind, you know, it's, it's kind of the way my mind works. I go down all these different little paths and I'm listening to you and thinking, gosh, we could probably do a whole show on EQ alone. Maybe we have to do that at some point because I, it's such an important topic um, that I'd love to explore more. And I appreciate the piece of it that you just brought to us. We do have to split for another break. And I do want to make sure we start talking a little bit about what you guys are doing right now and how you're applying and helping others. So when we come back from the break, uh, we'll continue on with Rena on that topic. We'll see everybody in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're one last time. Here we are with, with, with Rena. Rena, um, you know, again, we, we were starting to go down this path of, of emotional intelligence, not enough time to kind of get into all the aspects of it, but that has helped quite a bit. And it's part of what you, you teach. So, you know, at the very beginning, we, we, we basically, we said what your company was, you know, the Women's Center for Entrepreneurship. Um, but, um, but let's talk about what you actually do and who your audience is. So, um, so what does the organization do and for whom? The nonprofit helps micro businesses. We focus on women, but men are very welcome to use any of our services, our counseling and our classes. And we help them start businesses and grow businesses. And now during COVID to pivot. So we are highly, highly invested. We received a very generous grant from the SBA, as did most of the other women's business centers in the country to be able, which has given us the luxury of not charging at all this until April 30th, 2021. So everything that we're all doing is going to be free of charge. Normally we, we charge a symbolic fee mm-hmm. just to ha- make sure people have skin in the game and they actually show up for the sessions and to bring in a tiny bit of program income. But now that that grant is covering the cost of that. So I, 
we can help with what I asked. So I hold a monthly town hall and I, I plead with people, please tell us what you need and I will find subject matter experts and bring them in and they will teach classes and they will give you one-on-one counseling, one-on-one hour sessions. So imagine how much you would pay. A lot of these counselors charge hundreds of dollars an hour and we foot the bill for that. They usually give us a, they give us a bit of a break. They cover the co- uh, They give us a nonprofit rate and then we cover the cost of that. So anything that you can think of that an entrepreneur might need, we have those classes, whether it's in QuickBooks or marketing or Twitter or Facebook ads or how to, how to do an e-commerce site. We have six-week start your business, uh, business plans. We have 10-week accelerator programs that would help people with existing businesses to grow and scale up. And like I said, right now, the big, big focus is on pivoting, staying, <laughs> staying in business during the, the pandemic and making sure really it's about pivoting to become as digital as possible. So a lot of the brick and mortars need to become, make sure that they're as, uh, as mobile friendly as possible with their businesses and restaurants. We have restaurants who are as well, our clients, and we've tried to help all of them as much as we can with that technical support plus to get financial support, whether it's PPP funding, idle funding, connecting them with local, uh, local banks or local um, CDFIs that help with microloans, anything that we can do, we try. And so a couple of questions that came, came to mind. Uh, first of all, you use the term micro business. I think, you know, used it a couple of times. And how, how do you define a micro business? That's a very, very, very important distinction. We define microbusiness as five and less. The definitions out there vary. Sometimes it's 10 employees and less. And it's important to make that distinction because when you're listening to the news and they talk about small businesses, quote unquote, right. that's usually depending on the NAICS code. That's 500 employees and less. Right. So you're talking about seven, eight, nine-figure businesses, and those are called small businesses. So micro-businesses are really the small mom-and-pop operations. A lot of them are solopreneurs. It's just them. It's an army of one. And so they are really, really struggling. And the day that they actually hire their first employee is this revolutionary moment for them. That's one of the biggest things that we encourage everyone to do because that's when the business will really take off. Yeah. And so, and so from there, uh, you know, anybody who, um, just to understand this better, anybody who even has an idea that wants to start a business or they've got an idea that they've started, they can basically come to you to learn how to do anything business, really. That, that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, okay, you're probably not going to teach them how to, how to put out an IPO. That might be for a little bit of a bigger company, but, but almost, almost anything else you know, for operating their business successfully is going to come from you. Now, um, how, how are you guys funded? We receive this year two grants we received from the Small Business Administration, which is a government entity. And with that, one of those grants, I have to do fundraising and match that dollar for dollar. Every dollar that I don't match gets sent back. So thankfully, we've been able to do pretty successful fundraising and we have been able to get corporate sponsors, individual sponsors, foundations. Uh, it's, it's a whole spectrum and a diverse portfolio of people that we have to fundraise from. 
Yeah, and you know uh, what? What I don't think a lot of people understand, and you know, the the SBA, you know, really a helpful organization to small businesses. Um, you know, I've had some interaction with them in the past in my past work life. I mean, SBI SBA helped a lot of our franchisees get get you know stores up and running and those kind of things. Um, but um, you know. America is built on the small business, and thanks to technology, it's built even on the micro business. I saw a statistic not too long ago; it was a few years back, and uh, I, I forget the the specific numbers. They were like, um, I think there were something like thirty two million registered businesses in the United States, um, and I, I, that didn't include people who just put it put something on their ten ninety nine on their social security number, right, um, or their ten forty on their social security number. These these were filed businesses, and ninety six and a half percent, maybe a little bit more that that had less than 10 full-time employees. And, and I think a big chunk of those were just a couple employees or less. I mean, the, the country, if you, if you look at the sheer numbers of uh, the percentage of businesses, most of them are smaller micro businesses. So to be supporting those people, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And any, any time that you have a chance to support them, Please try your best to do so, whether it's buying your holiday gifts, going to local vendors, or even when you're searching for things online, try to go to local vendors and do anything you can, even if it's just buying gift cards from their sites. They, they really, really are struggling. They're supporting themselves. They're supporting their families. I think this is a big part of why I'm very passionate about helping women specifically, because statistics will show that women will reinvest those profits in their families and in their communities. You should see how many clients come to us and they say, I, I want, I have this great idea for a business, but I also want to open a nonprofit. So they all have this big component of compassion. And so we try to help them as well navigate. How can, how can they do that? How can they maintain a community component with their businesses? And so, yeah, anytime you can, I, I tell the story. There's one, uh, a, client, a co-worker who went to go buy a barbecue. It was time for to buy a new one, was on the way driving to Home Depot and said, you know what, I'm just going to check the local hardware store and see if he has one. He had one. It was $1 more and said, we're buying it from this guy. Why should I go to the big box store and get it from there? And I said, that's such a brilliant story. I wish everyone could espouse that concept and I know another person who says he'll pay up to 20% extra on the final price just to be able to patronize local stores, which I think is so compassionate. So really, I know a lot of people don't have the luxury to go up to 20%, yeah. but if it's a few bucks here and a few bucks there and that's okay for you, it's so wonderful to help those small businesses. Well, and I, I think there are choices. There's a way to support everybody, but but we have to remember that the small businesses are our consumers as well, right? And so that that's what you're getting at. So it's it's you know we support them so they can reinvest in the communities. Look, they're eating at restaurants. They're eating. They're 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 filling up their their tanks with gas. They're buying cars, right? They're utilizing they're utilizing services as consumers as well. And if, if we're not supporting them, if they're dying out there, where are they going to go? And then what happens? And that's when economies fail. I mean, we have to understand what the foundations of economies. Yeah, you know what? A lot of big businesses out there, and they're going to make money. I mean, people will still have their iPhone. You know, I mean, you know, nobody's nobody's going to start a micro business creating an iPhone. It's not going to happen, right? So, so the, the big companies are going to do just fine, but we do have to continue to find ways to support 
support these people. Um, you know, so you, you do a lot of great work. I would love it. Can, can you share, um, you know, you don't have to name names, obviously, but, but a success story. You know, somebody who maybe was struggling with um, their micro business that, that you really helped them turn it around. So we have several success stories, a lot of them who have pivoted very successfully during COVID. One of them has a, a spray vitamin company who, what a great place to be when health is now becoming the top big crisis of the, of the year. And so we helped her pivot and really make sure that she was able to grow her business online and digitally. We helped her with campaigns. We helped with marketing campaigns, how to talk to people about their immune systems and the benefits of spray vitamins. We have another one, Jelena, who had a local, uh, it was a local event planning business and put all of her investments into this one business and still managed to keep it thriving, was able to have to keep booking during the pandemic. She did it safely with COVID guidelines, 25% max capacity, everyone wearing masks, and because people still need to live and she continued with that business. So we have a lot of, I think a lot of our 10-week accelerator program graduates pivoted very, very successfully and we continue to help them on a daily and weekly basis just to brainstorm ideas, to get them resources, to bring in other partners that can help them. So we have one company, for example, that's coming in and they're going to help them to how to figure out how to hire freelancers online, for example. Right. So that's a big, big thing that I hear a lot of clients talking about. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do all of it. I can't do the marketing and the website and the inventory and the shipping and everything that I'm trying to do with the services, whatever, whether it's product or services. Well, what if you just hired someone for two hours a week or just a one five hour chunk to just take this off your plate and you you put this as part, by the way, it's a tax deductible a fee for that's a tax deduction for your business that you can put. So it's okay. And how do I hire them? So there are these websites that are out there that you can choose from hundreds of freelancers that will help. And how do you navigate those websites? So we were constantly trying to innovate as well ourselves and see what we can do to help our clients as much as we can. That's again. It's just it's it's a wonderful story, and um, and you know, for any of you that are listening out there, um, if you're listening live, obviously you know the time of year. If you're listening to this uh, recorded later on, we are recording during the holidays, and um, you know, certainly you know, we think about giving during the holidays. Um, that's that's when when our our donation um, awareness is up, and yet you know, donations for good nonprofits are, are required all year round. So though we're talking during the holidays, consider this, um, you know, uh, Rena, would you, would you maybe share with our audience? Well, if somebody wanted to donate, let's say somebody really has a passion for helping bi- women's businesses and un- understand that, that their dollars could get leveraged to help multiple businesses through you. Um, how, how would they, how would they donate to you? Our website is WCECNJ.org. That's Women's Center for Entrepreneurship, New Jersey.org. WCECNJ.org. And there's a big red donate button right there, front and center. Beautiful. Nice and easy. And um, you've got something going on for the holidays. Is there anything you wanted to highlight in, in particular? 
just what you said, help the micro businesses anywhere you can, anytime you can. Everyone's buying gifts. Everyone's patronizing different businesses. Just try to go to your local businesses and help them as much as possible. So to the listeners again, you know, help, help your, help your favorite nonprofits. And, and again, if you're, if, if you're a supporter of, of, of women's nonprofits, this is as good as one as I've ever found. So, um, we're, we're there. We're, we're kind of to the end of our time. Uh, Rena, I really appreciate your being with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a number of guests that we'd love to have on again. And uh, given your knowledge with emotional intelligence, maybe maybe at some point we can uh, we can bring that topic back around sometime. It'd be my pleasure. Absolutely. So, you know, everyone, thanks for listening this week. Um, it's, you know, as usual, we see a lot of the same themes come up on leadership and the, the importance of self-awareness um, is one theme that just keeps arising and, and that leads to, to, you know, better levels of EQ. But being a leader is is key and it's been key to success. Rena, your, your story um, makes up who you are. We all have a story. Let your story influence who you are and understand and learn from your story. I think it's, it's very, very important. Every single one of us has a story. Uh, yeah, some stories are probably a little more dramatic than others, uh, but, but we all have one. And the power of story is the power of leadership. So let's, um, uh, let's keep that in mind. I look forward to having everybody with me the next time, next time we're on the air. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or um, have a question for Rena, you're, you're free to contact me through the, um, through the radio station website, through our link, or you can uh, always go to Chris at transformativeexperts.com. You also always visit our website at www.transformativeexperts.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you next time. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.